Hi, podcast listeners. Trey here. I have a brief announcement. You know, one of the ever-present dangers of linguistics is that you might end up having to associate with conlangers. They are generally decent folk, but they will go on and on about their latest linguistic creation for hours and hours if you show even the slightest interest, or if you admit that you know what ergative means. They also sometimes show up late or overly tired because they were up all night manually adjusting 16,000 kerning pairs for the custom font they've been working on for a 600-character syllabary they created for one of the languages they've been noodling around with. One thing you can usually count on, though, is that these conlangers don't really have much else to do. So if you can handle them being groggy and or showing up half an hour late to everything, they are usually around to do stuff. Not so our compatriot David J. Peterson. He had to go off and follow his dreams. Actually, it looks a lot more like stalking his dreams. I think he followed them down a back alley, knocked them over the head with a dictionary, and dragged them back to his place. But instead of making a costume out of their skin... Wait, this metaphor's gone off the rails, sorry. Anyway, David has managed to become one of only a very small number of professional conlangers, and as such, he now hangs out with Hollywood types and famous authors and tweets pictures of himself sitting defiantly on garish thrones made out of swords. And so he has no time for us, we lowly satirical linguists and speculative grammarians. And so we say farewell to David as the host and as a regular contributor to Language Made Difficult, though he is contractually obligated to join us as a guest at least twice a decade over the next century. To commemorate our satirical loss and his remunerative gain, here are some of his greatest hits from 20 episodes of Language Made Difficult. This is the last time that I'm going to use peanut butter to defend lexicalism. Wow, no one thought I'd win 19 LDLNLs in a row, but here we are. The correct number of phonemes is three. Seven doesn't even make any sense. If language is math, the numbers are sourdough. Uh, in one way, you're wrong. In another more accurate way, you're profoundly wrong. But then Italian wouldn't exist. Look, guys, Bill is dead weight. If we're going to hit the big time, he's got to go. See? Nobody can say that. You stole my headset. You humiliated me in front of Dwayne and Susan. And now I'm stuck here in Oxnard? Oh, so happy to be back. Thank you for have asked Mr. Linguist again. Thought you didn't want segment anymore. You guys are the greatest. I'd also you everything. I'd be nothing without you. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Language Made Difficult, a cacophonous part of the Specram podcast. I'm Trey Jones, and this Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium is coming to you from our virtual conference center, hosted via satellite uplink from a garbage barge anchored off the coast of Hawaii. Joining me today are Bill Spruill. Hey. And Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. And also joining us again on the program is Sherry Wells Jensen. Welcome back, Sherry. Hello there. Thanks for visiting us again. I guess it's been long enough since your last visit that you forgot what it's like. What are we doing here again? Something... <laughs> Something nice, right? I think of it as a party. <laughs> Something that will better my career as a professional <laughs> linguist in the eyes of my colleagues. Yeah. That's what I was told. We have an awesome PR department then. <laughs> Let's start with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. So first, in honor of David's departure and his endless grousing for points, I'm going to retroactively award him one negative point. So the final <laughs> standings are, Bill has 12 out of 20, I have 11 out of 20, Keith has 9 out of 20, our guests have 5 out of 12, which is 41.67%, and David with his negative one retroactive point now has 8 out of 20, which is 40%, so he's in last place. And with that, we're going to wipe the slate clean <laughs> and start over with the scorekeeping. Oh, we're going to start over. How yeah. exciting. Yep, yep. The future is bright. <laughs> <laughs> you guys know the drill. I've got three language-related items. Two of them are true. One is false. And you guys have to figure out which is which. And after you make your overly educated guesses, we will discuss. Okay. Our topic for today is translation studies. And I'd like to give special thanks to Jonathan Downey for the great facts and the excellent falsehood. It's not my fault. I didn't make any of these up. Oh, that'll change how we think about them completely. <laughs> A new scoreboard, a new way of looking at things. Makes sense. Here we go. Number one, 
Due to the unique constraints of their jobs, simultaneous and consecutive interpreters have larger mean memory capacities than the general population. Number two, in a paper on the reception of machine and human technical translations, the translations prepared by the machine scored higher on every aspect except style. Number three, studies in how professional translators think have shown that they spend less time looking at the detail of a text than untrained bilinguals and translation students. All right, who'd like to go first? I can go first. Okay. So the first one, simultaneous and consecutive interpreters have, there was a key point here, I think you said, have larger mean memory capacities than the general population. And I want to know what mean memory means. Does that mean as in the sense of base or low? (laughs) Are we talking about RAM or ROM here? I think I'm going to go with true on this one, though I think it's probably false, but we'll call it true. The second one, you said that the machines scored higher than the humans on every aspect except style, right? Yep. Okay, this was a published paper, apparently, and that means that Jonathan encountered it somewhere, probably on the web, and that means we should expect that this counterintuitive conclusion is probably correct, or it wouldn't have made it into the news. So we're going to call this one true, I'm pretty sure. The third one was that professional translators spend less time looking at the details of the text than normal people, right? Right. And that's also got to be true because in my experience with translation, the longer I work on something, the worse the translation gets. (laughs) So looking at the details is definitely not helpful. (laughs) So they're all true. So that must mean number one was wrong. Okay, so the interpreters must not have a larger memory. They must have only a specialized skill in remembering little things they're going to translate. So we'll say that the first one was false. All right. Bill, you want to go next? Okay, let's see here. I am willing to believe that simultaneous and consecutive interpreters have larger mean memory capacities because I'm guessing the way they tested that was to give them verbal retention tasks because that's the kind of thing that would happen. And they would surprisingly do fairly well on those frequently. This one on the reception of machine and human technical translations I'd want to know who's scoring these, but if it's the type of people who read journals about machine translation, they're likely to think that the computer sounds better than a person except for style. And the only way that's going to mess up is if the computer starts sounding too fluent because then they're not going to like it. Um, The third one, the idea that professional translators spend less time looking at details than untrained bilinguals and translation students. I've taught for a good while. I've had a bunch of classes that had untrained bilinguals in them, and they're perfectly capable of missing every detail in a text, just like every other student in classes. And so I don't think they spend less time looking at the details, frankly. So what I'm going to do is... One is false because two and three seem truer. I don't know. I'm just settling on number one. It has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that Keith picked that one, too. But it's an excellent choice. (laughs) Right. So far. We'll see. (laughs) All right, Sherry. Okay, I can disagree with that easily. I'm feeling disagreeable tonight anyway. The whole mean memory thing, I was going to complain about mean memory. I was going to complain about what you're measuring and how you're measuring it and who says. and, And then I was thinking of, well, if you mean mean as in nasty, maybe it's easier to remember, you know, hurtful things that you have to translate. And then I was thinking that every time I've been asked to translate and do it badly, which is, oh, a lot, I remember all the things I did that I shouldn't have done. So I think I'm going to go with number 
one being true. I like number three. Let's see, what was this? What was about the details? Because I figure after you do it for a while, you get kind of used to it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But everybody sort of says the same things. I don't need to worry about the details. And if I <laughs> say it with enough professionalism in my voice and enough certainty, they'll just start believing that's what they said anyway. So I like that one. I really like number two also. But here's the thing. I want to know whose writing they compared the machines to, because if we're talking about my students, <laughs> then I don't know. I think the machine probably could do better. I had at least one person in one online class that I was pretty sure was a bot one time. <laughs> but <laughs> I really, and there was absolutely no way for me to find out because I cannot come up with the sociolinguistic context in which you can say, excuse me, but are you a bot? Really? <laughs> and I wanted to put a captcha up and stuff, but I thought that'd be me. I'm thinking number two is false. I want number two to be false, and so therefore I declare it to be false. So I'm going with two. Okay. And if you say it in the right voice, Trey will love it. (laughs) That's right. Trey, number two is the false one. What language would you like me to say this in? I could probably rustle up a couple. It's the false one. It is. Okay, so everybody agrees on number three, that professional translators spend less time looking at detail than untrained bilinguals and translation students, and that one is true. They spend more time on relating everything to the big picture, and apparently students and bilinguals tend to get caught up on the translation of individual words. So that was interesting. All right, so let's look at number two. That one was also true. Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, humanity. It just took a blow right there. (laughs) Now, I think the hint there is that it was technical translations. And so you may actually get more consistency and that kind of thing from a machine translation than you would from humans. In fact, it's number one, there is no difference between interpreters and the general population in terms of their memory capacities. Their mean memory capacities. Mean memory capacities, yes. Well, I was trying to avoid that word (laughs) mean since it seems to have too many meanings. (laughs) I'm going to work on my authority voice. I apparently need more (laughs) practice at this. No wonder my classes run the way they do. (laughs) So the bad news is that Keith and Bill got a point. Yes, that's the good news. That is the bad news. (laughs) And because David's not here to get it wrong, only one person got it wrong. so So I don't get a point. So that's one for Keith and Bill, none for me and Sherry. So I'm tied for the lead for the first time in 46 months. (laughs) Possibly, yes. (laughs) And I'm bad thousand on the other end. I'm proud of myself. (laughs) We'll be back in a second with some language news, but first a word from our sponsor. Brought to you by the National Philological Refugium and the support of listeners like you. Guys, did you look at the work roster David left? Um, uh, no, not really. Y- you know how he, he sort of left? He apparently edited everything. I am now being deployed to 15 different places, <laughs> all of which have vaccinations with them. <laughs> so, sorry, but I'm not going to be making the Specgram coffee anytime soon. But I have had time to read articles because... There's not much else you can do when you've got a strange blue rash. And I notice we've got this thing that came in saying that the grade level of Congress people's speech has been dropping. Apparently about mm. 10 or 15 years ago, they spoke at a almost 11th grade level. It's down. It has dropped a good grade level or two. The Sunlight Foundation did this study that came out claiming that if you go measure the grade level of their speeches, which is of a mysterious process, I don't know if they've got a gradometer, they aim at them or what. It seems to be connected with SAT words, which are the ones that are officially sponsored by the SAT. Um, <laughs> if you're measuring the 
complexity of their speeches. There is a significant correlation in the study between measures of distance from the center. So the more extreme you get, the simpler your speech tends to get. More extreme politically, right? More extreme politically, yeah, not extreme verbally. Or extreme sports. Or hairstyle or something. Or hairstyle or anything else, (laughs) although there may be a correlation between hairstyles and political extremity, I'm not sure. (laughs) Maybe orangeness of skin. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not entirely positive on that one. But the grade level of their speech has been going down. There seems to be some correlation with which cohort they're in and in terms of the duration of time in Congress. People that have been in Congress for more than 20 years seem to be kind of immune to it. And most outside influences, in fact, <laughs> it's more recent people who have come in in the past few years that seem to experience this drop off the most. And so I guess the question we're looking at is, does this say something actually about their speech or is this some plot by conlangers to destroy English so we'll have to learn the languages they make up? Because <laughs> they would target Congress first, obviously. What kind of methodology could we use on this kind of thing other than measuring, quote, SAT words, unquote, and something called the flesh Kincaid list? It says they're reading at the nth grade level, and I think that's a problem because no one ever makes it through the nth grade. (laughs) (laughs) That is a problem. Hey, I had a slightly different take on this article. They go on to talk about things like, well, the U.S. Constitution is written at a 17.8 grade level, and the Federalist Papers are written at a 17.1 grade level, and then so on and so forth. And I wondered if maybe this doesn't have anything to do with grade level at all, but what they're actually doing is a form of historical linguistics here. So that things that are older grade out higher, right? And that just means that we should expect that every year the grade should go down, right? So there's not really any surprise here. What would be surprising is if the speech of Congress members went up because that would go against a unidirectionality of historical change. (laughs) Yeah, one bit of supporting evidence for that is if you remember Robert Byrd, he actually spoke with long S's. (laughs) the the big f-shaped s's yeah (laughs) the ones that google books originally thought were etched to the amusement of people looking at the growth and the use of the f-word in the 18th century yeah (laughs) but we could look at his speeches and see how they measured those because if they come up with 18th grade level I happen to be somewhat familiar with the Flesh Kincaid reading level scores and it's supposed to correspond to once you get above 12 it's years of formal education It definitely starts to get a little weird when you get to the higher levels. I've actually run some statistics on articles in Specgram, and the reading levels are as high as in the (laughs) mid-30s, which means that... (laughs) 30 years of formal education? Exactly. Those are my articles, Trey. (laughs) Is that useful formal education or useless formal education? (laughs) Well, I think what that means is that the person who wrote it actually can't understand it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was what I wondered about Congress. There's a lot in this article about whether Congress members are speaking at a level that their constituents can understand, but I wondered whether they're speaking at a level that they themselves can understand. (laughs) I think it does make sense that the more politically extreme elements are speaking at simpler levels because they don't need to have as nuanced of a platform to get support. They just pick whatever their issue is and, you know, yay guns or boo guns or, you know, whatever, and you're done. (laughs) There's an additional 
thing the article mentions might provide an alternate explanation of that, and that is the people that talk the most seem to use the simplest language. Oh, that's just probably because they're tired. It's like frosting, you spread it, right? Right. It's like (laughs) conservation of information, that type thing. You get equal amounts of complexity, but it just gets spread out over different time lengths. But it's not information, it's it's grammar. But if we're measuring in SAT units, you know, how many SAT (laughs) words do they use? There's this conservation of multiple choice correctness. Okay, the hallmark of SAT words. If we simply posit that the more politically extreme politicians won't shut up, (laughs) then what really may be going on is that people who talk more use simpler words, and these just happen to be people that talk more because they won't shut up. Hmm. I think it's got to do more with who you're trying to dominate. So if you're writing, say, the Declaration of Independence, which I think they said clocked in at about grade 15 or something like that. So you're trying to dominate British aristocracy. So you're going to feel like, ooh, I better pour it on here. And maybe they you know, were pretty smart. So you had to pour it on. But if all you're trying to dominate is some kind of right or left-wing extremist, then you don't have to really pour it on that thick. You can sort of ride two grade levels above the people you're trying to dominate by instinct. And there you go. And that's so you can look at the grade level of understanding of who you're trying to dominate, and that will tell you how complicated to make your speech. So what you're trying to do then is you want to be smarter than them, but not yeah. so much smarter than them that you're elite. Right. Just so they go, ooh, not so they go, <laughs> I'm going to argue with that because 18th century British aristocracy <laughs> weren't that right in most cases. I mean, you know, they inherit their traditions and their family trees were kind of like banyans. They all had to buy themselves gifts for Christmas, <laughs> you know. And so you get both of those things going and you figure the gene pool's kind of shallow. There's not much selection. We'll put them in the middle of a pasture. You can figure if it's going to rain by whether they lie down or not. So <laughs> I think what Jefferson and Franklin and so forth, the people they were making an argument to were people in the House of Commons who were, were all trying to figure out when a dagger was going to come at their back next. And so they were on their toes. I was actually heading in the same direction that you ended up there at the end uh, with the idea that this doesn't invalidate Sherry's hypothesis. It just says that she picked the wrong target of the Declaration of Independence. Right. right. And maybe you have to nuance it. So it's not their actual intelligence, but your opinion, their, their perceived intelligence. Ah, right. Because, I mean, think about what we all think about. If anyone in the British royal family sneezes, we're all like, oh, we got to know what that was. What was that? How did that happen? So I think it's got to do with your perception of the person you're dominating. How much energy do I really, really, really have to exert here to dominate the following of my choice? Okay, so with this hypothesis, one of the observations of the article is that not only is Congress at a particular level, but that over the last 10 years or so, it's gone down. Who have they stopped aiming at and who are they aiming at now? They think we're getting dumber, maybe. Or they just think in general we're all getting dumber? Well, I mean, the article claims that the average American speaks somewhere between 8th and ninth grade level. So one of the claims they make is that maybe members of Congress are actually getting better in terms of being closer and closer to the level of their constituency. Hmm. I don't know. If the opposite of pro is con, (laughs) then the opposite of progress is Congress. I think that actually explains all of it. (laughs) Well, that sounds like about as much of this as we can take, or as we would say in the words of Congress, we done, we stop now. And now, an SAT word from our sponsor. 
Since the dawn of linguistics, scholars of all stripes have looked for that one rule that connected all languages. In a new book from Speculative Grammarian, we have found it. Yes, the key to understanding all language origins and development is Universal Grandma. Universal Grandma covers all the latest research in the field. In Pooleyu and Robson's paper, read how Universal Grandma and the removable dental appendage principle are responsible for all phonetic shifts from dental to labiodental fricatives. In Jones et al.'s paper, entitled, read how liquid and non-liquid consonant clusters are generated by latent cuteness and voiceless sloppy kisses. Lastly, in Downey's essay, entitled Read How Linguistic Conservatism in Translation Arises Due to Black and White Films and Nostalgia Features. It's all new. It's all yours. It's all the work of respectable linguists. It's Universal Grandma. Buy it now or I'll whack you with a switch. Okay, we're back. Well, some of our listeners are almost certainly teachers of linguistics, whether by choice or not, and we won't try to guess that. But anyway, we would like to commiserate with them and perhaps to encourage them by discussing some of our own experiences as teachers in the field of linguistics. Now, we have two people in our show today who are real experts at this, and then a couple of us that are, um, well, we have a little bit of experience. But uh, Sherry and Bill can really tell you what it's like to teach linguistics. So I'm just going to ask them a few questions, and we'll see what we can learn about being instructors in this discipline. Let's start off with the most obvious question. What is the easiest linguistic discipline to teach and why do you think it's the easiest? Bill, do you have an opinion about that? Uh, that would probably be sociolinguistics. Students tend to be already interested in it. The interactions between different groups in speech already is of social interest to them. Mm. You get to use the word social a good bit, which is unusual in linguistics. They're already familiar with dialect differences exist and that kind of thing. And so you can draw on dialect research. You can put maps up. You mm. can bring in a lot of points of interest. In a sense, they already have more of the background for it. Yeah, and in fact, instead of relying on the textbook to tell them what the correct like grammaticality judgments are, they don't have to. They can make up the correct answers themselves. That just gets them right into the spirit of the field, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought the point was to survey the dialects of people in your class and then ridicule the ones who have bad ones. <laughs> That's why they like it. That's exactly why they like it. <laughs> I agree with Bill. It's the sociolinguistics. They love it. And for some of the same reasons, they like talking about power and discrimination, race, and all that kind of stuff, as long as you're you're talking about somebody else, right? Somebody Mm -hmm. else's power, race, gender dynamics that are unfair and oppressive. As long as it doesn't get too close to home, they're cool with it. And it gives them license to do these sort of borderline sociopathic homework assignments where, where they can do really mean things to their friends and go, oh, my sociolinguistics teacher told me to do that to you. They could, <laughs> well, maybe they on some future show, I'd like to know what those things are. But <laughs> uh, you know, I think I, I have to take the fifth on a lot of these. <laughs> what do you mean? They violate Gricean maxims at each other and they covertly oh, yeah, record yeah, yeah. one another and they do all these things. And and then they say, oh, my teacher told me to. It's okay. <laughs> One of my favorite, uh, I was actually a student in this class, but we were discussing the vowel in the word horrible. And one of the students made the mistake of saying, in the Midwest, it's horrible. And without missing a beat, the instructor said, yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, Sherry, what's the most difficult linguistics class to teach? <laughs> it's, the, it's the required course in interlinguistics that the unsuspecting literature majors are driven into by requirements ah. or by mistake. And they weep and they tear their hair. They think they're going to just sink into the essence of the being of the language. And then I start talking about Turkish morphemes and they they panic <laughs> and they hate it. And they hate me and they hate the whole thing. Like, why the am I doing Turkish morphemes? I want to emote about the meaning of the meaning of the meaning within and you're making me do what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bill, do you have a yeah. similar experience? 
Yeah, pretty much the most difficult linguist area to teach is sociolinguistics. <laughs> Wait, you said that was the easiest. It, it is. It's also the most difficult. It is both the sign and das nicht sein. It, it, it is, in fact, both because it is easy to get them interested in it. They feel like the examples are very accessible and that type of thing. But then, as the instructor, you are frequently put in the position of asking a large group of people, many of whom are in the like 18 to 22 age range not all, but many, to try to become aware of the way they're actually making judgments about their language to step outside of that. Mm -hmm. And that's incredibly difficult. Lots of people among college faculty can't do that. And so, in a sense, they can learn a bunch of terms about sociolinguistics, understand facts about sociolinguistics, but it's incredibly difficult to get them to ken sociolinguistics. Mm. I think a lot of times they, they feel like we're calling names. They say, yeah. we say, well, what do you mean I changed the way I talked for different groups of people? Doesn't that make me a liar and uh, yeah. two-faced and bad? And I said, well, would you talk to me the same way you talk to your grandmother? You better not. <laughs> Both for me and your grandmother's yeah. sake. And they're like, well, I wouldn't do that. That'd be stupid. But I don't change the way I talk because that would be wrong. <laughs> mm. You always talk exactly the same to your friends as you do to the cop who pulled you over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's incredibly difficult for people to kind of become consciously aware of the language they're using. It's kind of like you keep pointing at the window and they keep looking out the window and you keep saying, no, no, I want you to look at the window. <laughs> okay, like, like that glass. What, what, what kind of glass is that? You know, that sort of thing. And that sort of stepping sideways move is one that's very difficult to teach. Mm. And they don't want to know that they do anything, you know, that you could say is racist or bad or they don't want know that they have judgments. One time I actually did a match guys test in my class where I had the same person in different dialects read the same bit. Mm -hmm. And I gave a series of questions, you know, is this person smart? Is he clever? Do you want him to be your friend? And it all came out as expected. And I had a mutiny on my hands. They were so angry. They called the chair. They're like, our teacher oh, no. called us racist and we're, we're not. And she's just bad. <laughs> it, was, it was terrible. I would never do that again ever. I've never even come close to doing it. It was terrible. Oh, that's too bad. That actually sounds like useful and you know they could learn something relevant to real life and not just linguistics i thought i was brilliant they hated yeah. it. you're able to make that sort of thing happen if the students are psychology students and you pay them right and then they don't <laughs> complain because yeah well let's go on to another question what class do you wish your department would let you teach does anybody mm. spend your time dreaming about the class you either oh. a real one or one you would like to make up now can i have all the money i want and all the resources i want and do this anywhere right that's the rules of course of course <laughs> yes certainly there aren't any so rules much. you just make it all up well no I, I want to impose a little bit of rule it can't just be oh. i want to teach zen meditation on a beach in hawaii it has to actually be no, no, related. Has to be linguistics <laughs> right yeah okay zen okay. linguistics zen linguistic meditation on a beach in hawaii okay so grant me a cruise ship okay, okay. Uh, before you say no <laughs> i'm on this cruise ship a really nice one a great big one and we go from port to port, preferably in the Pacific. And it's my job in the three weeks between the stops to teach everybody as much. And I don't have to know these in advance. I'm making this up as I go along because I don't like good course prep. That's no fun. So, so I have to make it up as I go along. I've got a week. Next week, we have to do enough survival Japanese to keep my students fed when they go into port. Like teach them all this survival <laughs> Japanese.
Japanese they need. Mm-hmm. And then we do that for three weeks, and then they go to then they go to Japan. They do it, and then we all forget all of that because that's after the three weeks the really hard work starts, right? So we don't want to do that. Right. So, so so we get our little taste of success. They order their sushi, you know, they get their cool shoes and their you know their toe socks and whatever they want in the port in Japan, <laughs> and then they forget it all immediately. And then we go sail around in circles for three weeks while we acquire enough Korean to do it again. Okay, so we would call that applied linguistics or something like that, language <laughs> acquisition, practicum in language acquisition, right? Super Bill, advanced you? language study. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Bill, how about you? You know, this boils down to what can we bring to bear in terms of resources and that kind of thing. <laughs> If you're letting me sort of do the equivalent of being the James Bond villain of linguistics instructors, (laughs) I'm picking that because that would be the fun one, right? Then taking a state legislature and putting them in a situation where they have to deal with each other, but they cannot use any doublespeak. (laughs) They can't say, they cannot say casualties. They have killed or injured people. (laughs) All right. No euphemism. They can't say downsizing. They have to say firing people, you know. Mm -hmm. And what the class does is kind of a sociolinguistic and ethnographic study of the ensuing panic that will break out. (laughs) I think a key metric in that case would be the number of facial tics each of them developed. (laughs) Yeah, it would just be interesting, right? Now, of course, the setting that up is difficult. Yes, but. yes. Well, this is interesting because both of you are suggesting teaching classes that are very, can I say, applied, you know, sort of real world applications of uh, linguistics or things related to linguistics. Let's talk for a minute about uh, theory. When you teach a class in syntax or phonology or something else that's one of these so-called core kind of disciplines that's heavy on theory, roughly what percentage of the things that you say in class do you actually believe? Now, can I get you to sign a waiver that nobody in my department <laughs> listens to the podcast? I, I was just thinking, this is the career ender. <laughs> take the fifth. Take the fifth. I mean, I, I could start out because I have taught an intro syntax class using a textbook in a framework that I don't really believe in. And I actually find the effects of having used that book to be pretty good in terms of what the students are able to do when they come out. But I think as far as the theoretical machinery, this is an intro syntax class. As far as the theoretical machinery, I believe I'm certain less than half of it. And I sometimes even tell the students that, which is probably a stupid idea. But so I find that the machinery can be useful, even though I I think it's all nonsense from the point of view of does language actually work that way? Does the theory present itself that way? Because, I mean, a lot of syntactic theories, they'll they'll claim it's psychologically plausible until you point out to them that that's stupid and they go, no, 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 it's just descriptive. So does the textbook actually make that claim? Well, no. This is a textbook written by a guy who understands that issue and he doesn't make any claims one way or the other. And the reason I like it is because I think partly having studied intro syntax, you ought to know all these terms, right? Even if they're not true. Yeah. But what about others? You know, I don't often have to do that because, you see, I'm the only linguist in my department, so they don't know what I'm teaching, so I don't have to teach the canon if I don't want to. Okay. And okay, so you- I write the comps question afterward, right? So, Oh, right. So, so you're the, there's no checks and balances at all. I, I'm building an empire. <laughs> 
and therefore you could teach what's true. That's right. And I get to hire the next person that comes in, right? Theoretically. So <laughs> honestly, we're very applied. So if it doesn't make any sense in the real world, it doesn't do my students any good because they've got one class and it has to be the applied syntax class. So we do lots of contrastive analysis. And so I'm in a very fortunate place. I don't actually find myself having to re-say many of the things I learned in graduate school all that often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say graduate school sounds like it was irrelevant to your actual job. I know, it was a good launching pad. You got to have a place to start from, right? <laughs> Something to kick off of, as it were. <laughs> Bill? It sounds like Bill's taking the fifth over there. Well, it's very different depending on the class I'm teaching. We have a 100-level course that is very social issue-oriented, and then we have a 300-level course that's just an intro to linguistics, like core linguistics. And the 300-level undergraduate course has the syntax unit and that sort of thing. We also have a graduate course that is sort of English grammar for language teachers. It's applied. So when I'm teaching the graduate course, I use books that use a theory that doesn't present itself as a, quote, God's truth, unquote, theory. It presents itself as, here's something we think is useful. And so, since it isn't making those kinds of claims, there's no real problem with it. I mean, it doesn't claim to represent psychological reality necessarily. It's, here's a really useful way of talking about language that you can do a lot of things with. At the undergraduate level, we do have the kind of, you know, your typical text is going to say based on when the last edition of the textbook was published, the official tree diagrams, and we will pretend there's no real controversy in this, and here it is, you know. And I usually spend at least one class period talking about what models are. If you start with a set of assumptions, and then you're doing logically plausible and defensible steps based on those and building models then you can still get a huge range of models based on your assumptions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I go ahead and tell them that the theory isn't necessarily claiming to be psychologically real. I'm basically saying, look, you don't have to agree this is how language works in your head. That leads to my next question, which I was thinking of is, mm. what percentage of the things you say in class do you think your students actually believe? And I want to tell a quick story. I remember when I was taking a syntax class as an undergrad, I was sitting in the class right before it started and the professor came in and started writing all these sentences on the board and I looked at it and like, oh, I see, I see, I see what's going on. I see the pattern. I see, you know, these are the acceptable ones. These are the unacceptable ones. It, it all makes sense. I know what we're going to talk about today. And then he wrote them all down and then he started putting stars in front of them and he put them in front of all the wrong ones. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, uh oh, this is going to be a rough day. <laughs> so I didn't believe anything. <laughs> Especially non-majors or in introductory classes, do they think linguistics is a real thing or just some made-up academic hogwash? The kind of approach I take is, and I'll kind of tell them directly, the point here is really not whether you believe me or not. It's what kind of evidence is there for this versus what kind of evidence is there against it. I treat everything as an argument. You're not just filling their heads with facts. You're teaching them critical thinking skills. Hey. Well, I, you're what's wrong with this country. Oh, wait. I'm trying <laughs> to do that. Now, of course, this has always been true, I guess, but it's really true now. They've grown up through this standardized testing regime. And so the idea that reality is a list and that education consists of memorizing portions of that list <laughs> is something that they've had many occasions to find out that if they don't believe they're in trouble, right? It's like 
every time they start exploring things around the edges, the multiple choice test tells them they had to cough up the right term. And so when I'm trying to get them to treat things as an argument, they are frequently they're going, oh, but what's going to be on the standardized test? What term? What do I have to memorize? You know, and this kind right. of thing. My father was a chemistry professor. And the first time I taught a linguistics class, I was talking to him on the phone and I said, Dad, I just wrote this great final exam. The students are going to have to really understand the concepts and, and apply them in new ways. And it's going to really show whether they've internalized how you do this stuff. And he said, oh, you'll get over that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's kind of right. <laughs> but this whole and, thing is uh, really tough because you have one minute in the class, I'm saying, okay, pay attention. What do you think? What do you feel? What happens around you? And just introspect and tell me what people say and observe. And then they'll say, I observe that this person speaks really bad grammar and therefore she's stupid. And so <laughs> so I spend half the time telling my class, ooh, your intuitions are valid and they're important. And you tell me what's ungrammatical. And the other half saying, but you're wrong. You can't say that. <laughs> well, it must have serious psychological implications for you personally. It's damaging. <laughs> Let me ask one more question about teaching linguistics before we stop. Oh, she's she's crying. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm really a trauma. I'm, I'm with you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Let me ask one final question about teaching linguistics. For those that are teaching linguistics today, how would you compare the education in linguistics that you got to the education that your students are getting? Well, it sounds like Sherry's classes are just getting the actual truth. <laughs> 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 the absolute truth <laughs> as handed down to them. <laughs> the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but. <laughs> nothing but. <laughs> well, unlike when I was a graduate student, when they study Proto-Indo-European, there are no live speakers to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> unlike your experience. <laughs> that sounds like a good place to end. <laughs> I guess I guess there's no more to say. So thank you very much for sharing your experiences. We hope that no one's position is, um, uh, shall we say, downsized or uh, <laughs> made redundant as a result of this discussion. That's all the time we've got for Language Made difficult. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. Hosted via satellite uplink from a garbage barge, anchored off... <laughs> close. Very close. They'll turn me into a newt! Okay, and, and somebody has to remind me, I'm sorry, again, what are the... Like, is it one that's true, and two? <laughs> Don't worry, don't worry. I did not know they're German octopi. Somehow that's frightening. They're not mutant German octopi bred for... They're just in a zoo. <laughs> like a land octopus of some kind. <laughs> but that's how you always sneak the mutant octopi past people is you just say, no, it's just a zoo octopus. And then they say, okay, because zoos have octopi, couldn't possibly be mutant. There you go. <laughs> I'm just sitting with this image of the octopus crossing France in a little line. <laughs> Makes it 10 feet in, gets eaten with a complex sauce. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't there be mutant octopodes or something? That's how you know it's a mutant, because it's an octopi and not an octopode. Okay. But it's German. could be one of those crazy irregular plurals like octopodes. <laughs> octopodes. I thought we'd burn that bridge when we got to it. I can tell this is going to be lots of fun to edit. Due to the neat... And so I haven't actually read the article yet. You guys are worse than students. I read until I got tired. Uh oh, it's so difficult that she can't talk about it. Still have some sponsors? You know, Bill's chair actively tries to derail the podcast on a regular basis.